You are listening to a sermon from Linworth Road Church. For more information about Linworth Road Church, please visit www.linworthroadchurch.com. Well, if you'll allow me to begin this way this morning, can I say that something is wrong, friends? Something is desperately wrong. You might have heard in December the Washington Post article or read it. It was a story that came out less than a month ago that America, they called it, America is losing ground to death and despair. What happened is that for the first time in 100 years, the life expectancy in America is in a four-year decline. Washington Post said it's the longest sustained decline in expected lifespan in a century. An appalling performance not seen in the U.S. since 1915 through 1918. That four-year period included World War I and a flu pandemic that killed 675,000 people. Fewer people today are making it to 65. Why? One, the opioid crisis is paramount. Drug-related deaths, particularly related to opioids. Secondly, the increase of suicide, particularly amongst younger people. And thirdly, and this is where it's a little more theoretical, but what they call despair-related deaths. These are not necessarily suicides, but they are when people drink themselves to death or die from kidney failure or die from accidents resulting from a I-don't-really-care-if-I-live attitude. That's Exhibit A. Here's Exhibit B. I went to a leadership seminar recently in Cincinnati, and uh, there were actually people there from all over the world. It was just about 13 or 14 of us, and half of them were from different countries. But three of the people there I actually knew. Didn't know I would see them there, but it was a friend and a colleague named Tony Pearson from Virginia Tech University. He's a college leader there. And um, this seminar we were attending was a seminar training church leaders how to help their churches become better listeners and to become more supportive communities. Well, I learned a little bit of Tony's story. They were there because the secular university was turning to the church and asking them for help. Now, friends, that's not an everyday occurrence. Here is why the Virginia Tech administration was turning to Tony and other faith leaders. Here, these are their words. They wrote, over 42% of the incoming freshmen are struggling with serious depression. 42%, over 42%. And one in 12 of them actually have a suicide plan. Again, friends, these are not my words. These are not the words of a church. This is the administration from Virginia Tech. They went on to say, our counseling services are overloaded. Just trying to keep up with the actively suicidal students. Many of the rest are just one rejection away from going over the edge. Could you possibly organize the religious community and provide affecting coping skills and suicide prevention? Exhibit three. Some of you just got back from Faith Walkers, and praise God for the contributions that a number of our pastors and and Tom Short made. But Nick Lashiva, who just led music here, led a seminar at Faith Walkers And it was called Healing for the Wounded Soul. Nick had uh, anticipated a certain number and had almost three times as many people attend the seminar. 
They actually had to change rooms to accommodate all the people. And he had to offer a follow-up because of the hunger. Again, the topic, healing for the wounded soul. Friends, something is wrong. Something is wrong. You see, there is a veneer out there that we're creating this utopia. We have these hip and these cool urban areas where people sit outdoors sipping latte, lattes. I, I do know what that is, lattes. <laughs> chatting with friends, surrounded by great restaurants, uh, in the middle of shopping districts featuring worldwide brands. We're a progressive society where everybody can express themselves however they want, 24-7 Netflix, 24-7 ESPN, cold brew coffee. Friends, beneath the veneer, life is not working. We're less personal. There's less genuine human contact. No one knows how to be in a family anymore. No one knows how to be in relationships. You see, beneath the veneer, Something is true that was true 2,000 years ago and 3,000 years ago and 1,000 years ago. Life's still hard. Life is still hard. And you see, family and relational communities were meant to be a buffer to that hardness, to provide support and a community where the hardness of life could be met with comfort and support. Without that buffering, that buffering institution of family and church and community. People look for comfort and they can find none. And they are overwhelmed by despair. Nick, could you bring those up, please? A little prop I want to use. Thank you, Nick. How about a hand here for Nick, my prop guy? And by the way, congratulations on that seminar and also to Nick Carruthers who spoke so well and Tom Short also. Now, this is my wife's luggage. So, guys, I'm not turning in my man card here, all right? This is my wife's luggage. Everyone is carrying some luggage from your past, okay? Some of you are carrying a lot. Some of you are carrying middle. Some of you are carrying just a little. But everyone is carrying baggage from their past, wounds from neglect, unprocessed pain from cruel words, rejection from a friend, the loss of loved ones, trauma from a divorce, abandonment, miscarriages, abortions, even external trauma like 911. Our accidents that we've had, our even battlefield trauma. You know, some of you are actually carrying something like this, and you think it's normal. You have been doing it your entire life. This is the way life has always been. You've gotten used to it. You don't even know that life could be any different. You're like a fish made for the deep sea, but you're stuck in an old farm pond. My apologies to farmers who have ponds. Some of you are saying, well, some of you are saying, some of you are, are older, and you're saying, I, I'm just, my bag's about this big. And if that's the case, wonderful. I just want you to appreciate that many millennials are carrying this, okay? I just want you to appreciate that. Many, many millennials are carrying baggage 
like this one. It's the biggest one. Now, to address our past, to address our emotional baggage, means addressing our family of origin. We are shaped by our past, and for most, the primary shaper was your family of origin. Your mom, your dad, your siblings, but not just your immediate family. Your grandparents, that crazy uncle, great-grandparents. We inherit much more than wealth or things. As the saying goes, Jesus might live in our hearts, but Grandpa lives in our bones. We all have one of these. We all have one of these. There you can see at least three, if not four generations. Actually, there is four generations there. We all have one of those. It may not be as big as this, but we all have something like this in our lives. Three or four generations that we have been shaped by. In this series, we're going to gently, gently unpack some of the soul-shaping characteristics that are passed down through families. For example, things like generational sins. Alcoholism, sexual abuse, dabbling in the occult, affairs, rage, mistrust, fear, overwork. Secondly, we'll look at relational patterns. There are relational patterns in every family system. Those patterns may be flexible and open. And, 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 and empowering to people, or they may be very rigid and very, very narrow. Those systems may bring people together in closeness, or people might be disconnected. In every relational family and unit and community, there are something is messaged about conflict, how we process conflict. It might be fight, it might be flight, it might be freeze. And finally, there are scripts. Actually, there's two more yet. There are scripts. Every family gives a script. Those are life messages saying, who are we? Who are you? What does success mean? And we'll examine how those scripts fit into the ways of Jesus. And finally, we'll raise questions. How do we pass on generational blessings? How do we pass on generational blessings? How do we build new legacies of spiritual and emotional health in our family and in our church and in our relational communities? This will give you a sense of where we're going for the next several weeks. But what do we want to do today? Today I want to simply do this. I want to say, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about generational sin and generational blessing. And then secondly, what I want to do is address the four obstacles that we have that keep us from going back and exploring our past. I'd like to say this morning, uh, give credit to two, two entities. One is a man named Peter Scazzaro, who wrote a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality and Emotionally Healthy Churches. Great books. They've had a great impact on the church in in uh, our culture. As a matter of fact, I, I think it's confirmed. We're hoping to have 
Peter Scazzaro speak at our pastor's conference this upcoming summer. And then secondly, I'd also like to credit Bridgetown Church. I have been trafficking in materials like this for years, using it in uh, workshop settings or counseling settings, and I thank Bridgetown Church for putting this into a Sunday morning format, parts of which I will use and I have found very, very helpful. But why don't you stand and let me read Exodus 34, 6 and 7. And we'll start there as a way of introducing this topic. What does the Bible say about generational sin and generational blessing? And very simply, the context here is that Israel has just committed a terrible sin. And there is a sense here of God trying to start over after Moses' appeals for God to start over with the nation of Israel. And here is what he says. I'll start in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. This is Moses. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, with all of us standing here as a congregation, as a body, may your Holy Spirit reveal Christ to us today. May your Holy Spirit make available to us the thoughts and the emotions and the mind of Christ that we might see him and might pursue a path of greater healing and wholeness. Father, if someone here this morning does not yet know you, does not yet come into a friendship with you, we pray that you would take them one step further down that pathway this morning. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Can you sit down? Let me, let me note some points from this, these three simple verses. First, did this sound familiar to you? If it did, it's because this is one of the most oft-repeated statements from the Scriptures. It has a creed-like quality, saying this is what we believe, emphasizing the characteristics and the person of God. It is repeated all throughout the library of Scripture for emphasis. Secondly, did you track with the first part and feel really great about it? Oh, yeah, I love that part about showing love to a thousand generations and, and uh, slow to anger and abounding in love. Got some warm feelings about that. But maybe you had a little harder time tracking with the second part. Why is God going after the grandkids and even the great-grandkids? It doesn't seem just. 
aren't there other parts of Scripture that say the Son should not die for the sins of the Father and the Father not die for the sins of the Son? How do these two fit together? It's a little bit of a conflict between individual and corporate responsibility. Where does one begin and the other end? Now to that point, I think there's a difference. The verses that emphasize individual responsibility, such as in Ezekiel, they deal and address with specific consequences of breaking the Torah, breaking the law. A son should not go to jail if his father murders his neighbor. The father should. This passage we read is broader in scope. It might include that, but it is broader. This is talking about, I think, the sins of a father, of a great-grandfather, will visit the sins of a daughter, a great-granddaughter, and so forth. These are the sins that permeate a family and become part of the DNA of a, DNA of a family unless it is broken. You know, there's this whole current study right now called epigenetics. Has anybody heard of that? I'm just curious, epigenetics. Carl, I thought you might. I'd love to talk to you more about this because I'm not sure I completely understand it. But they are exploring, this is relatively new research, is it not? Exploring what actually gets passed down from, one family, from a family to a, a family member, passed down in families. That it is more than just physical characteristics. But if you had trauma in your life, for example, and the way that you responded to that trauma, what they are finding is these DNAs are tagged. There's something about the DNA that actually gets passed on to the next generation. Again, there's been research about this with respect to the disposition towards addiction as possibly being passed down genetically, becoming a part of the DNA. I believe that what is visited then on the third and fourth generations are these sins that impact a family system. Now, some hold these to be what they would call generational curses. And again, I think I need to do more study in this. But the idea here, at least portrayed by some, is that God is rendering to people a separate, unrelated judgment for what the sins of a great-grandfather. So then, what is being taught, or what a person might understand, that is if an individual has these repeated, bad, random things happening to them, and they believe that they're cursed because of something way back that great-grandpa did that has really nothing to do with what's happening to them. I don't think that's what's being taught here. I believe these are actual sins and practices that become the accepted way of doing things. Great-grandpa did not respect his wife, or women in general. Grandpa did not respect his wife, or women in general. Dad did not respect his wife, or women in general. Isn't that just the way things are? <laughs> I think that's the thrust here. And here, yes, the decision that dad makes impacts the son, and in that sense, you can say the son does suffer the consequences of his father's sins unless something breaks that cycle. 
Now, we live in a hyper-individualistic society, and we hear people saying all the time, it's my body, I'll do what I want. It doesn't affect anybody. Just don't get married. Just don't get married. Because it's not true. It's not, it's not true. It's not even close to being true. I want to look at one other passage that will help us understand this passage. It's actually the anchor to this passage. Anybody know where the anchor to this passage is? Just if you know it, yell it out. Because some of you do know it, I'm sure. The anchor to this passage is in the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. Look back at Exodus 20. Look back at Exodus 20, verse 4. Beginning, let me, let me start at verse 5. He's talking about idols. You shall not bow down, verse 5, to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He has a loyal love, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Now look at what's here. It's a little different. Of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now again, other versions of this say a thousand generations. I want you to notice some of the differences here. First, notice these sins do connect to the sin of idolatry. Idolatry is giving something or someone place in your life that only God should have. Loving the wrong things, I think is the message here, loving the wrong things gets deep into a family system and is hard to root out. Now, Secondly, Notice that it says here, or again, again, some of the interpreters interpret that thousand to be a thousand generations. And actually, some of the other versions simply say that, a thousand generations. I think this is a way of saying forever. And that is the way, as you go through the library of Scripture, that is the way some other biblical writers interpret this. And I want you to think of what he's saying here about the character of God. His mercy lasts forever. His anger is limited to the third or fourth generation. Mercy triumphs over justice is how Jesus said it. God's essential core character is mercy and justice. It is only a secondary characteristic, his anger is a secondary characteristic to his mercy. And finally, notice how it says those who hate me versus those who love me. That's included here in this anchoring statement. To those who hate me, those sins will continue. Those who love me will build a whole different legacy. What I take from this is that our response can make a difference. This Generational curse, so to speak, does not have to be something that imprisons me. I can learn to go a different path. Now, there are different scholars, or certainly there are some things here that are hard to interpret. There are some challenges in in these passages. But I do think there are three things we can walk away with that are true about what the Bible says regarding generational sin and blessing. Number one is this. And it's a sobering reality for all of us that are parents. A parent's sin has consequences for their children. It's just real. 
just a re- real thing. Secondly, sin runs in the family. Again, I think we've all seen we've all seen that. But then thirdly as well, you can break free from sin that goes back generations. You can break free from sin that goes back generations. Okay? So, I think this gives us some perspective on what the Bible says regarding generational sin and generational blessing. Now, let's cover in our remaining time four objections that people raise and that you might raise to going backwards to the past, okay? Four obstacles, four objections to addressing your past. Here's the first one. I don't need to. I don't need to. Well, you come from a great Christian family. You come from a healthy Christian family. Can I say praise God for that? That is fantastic. You're blessed. You're a minority, but you're blessed. But isn't it also true? I mean, just let me come over to your house for a few days over the holidays. And you come to mine for a few days. I bet there's some dysfunction. There's some issues in every family. If I hang out with you, if you hang out with me, I think we'll discover that. You may have heard the saying, everyone is normal until you get to know them. And again, maybe you're only carrying this amount. Praise God for that. But even this little amount may contain some things that don't conform to the ways of Jesus. And also, as followers of Jesus, we want our whole life to conform to His image. Think carefully about your family of origin. There were messages, for example, about expressing anger, addressing grief, what success means. There were very likely unspoken codes about sexuality, people of other cultures, and addressing conflict. All of these things and much more are passed down through families. Peter Scazzaro said this. He said, what messages did you receive about parenting, for example, in your family of origin? Gender roles, marriage, singleness, physical affection and touch. How did your family view God, other churches, other faiths? It is essential we reflect on the messages that were handed down to us, submitting them to Christ and His Word. So, that's the first objection. I don't need to. I would suggest that if we want Jesus to permeate all of us, it's a worthy endeavor to address your past. Here's a second one. Isn't the Christian faith about moving forward, not dredging up the past? Now, we often quote Philippians 3 in this case where Paul said, forget what lies behind, I forget it all, and I press forward towards the goal which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now, what Paul is talking about there is abandoning any form of self-righteousness. In his own life, he turned back on anything that he might cling to, his education, his stature in the community, his impeccable heritage. He abandoned all of that in order to embrace Christ. I do not believe Paul is suggesting here that we move through life superficially, never paying attention to our emotional selves, or the forgiveness we might need to receive or to give, or the losses we might need to heal from. Uh, Here's my case in point. Think of all the pain and tragedy and trauma 
that Paul went through. Indeed, we know certainly the physical attacks, the persecution, the rejection, the mocking, the fear. There may have even been more than that. There is some evidence that Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. That's Israel's highest, that was Israel's uh, highest legal court. If he was a member of the Sanhedrin, a requirement was that he would have to have been married. So some theorize Paul was married, may have even been a father. If that's the case, his wife must have abandoned him, would have had nothing to do with him after he became a Christ follower. And indeed, that may also have been the case with his parents as well. They may have turned their back on Paul. You have a lot of reasons for a man to become very bitter about life and joyless. But what do we see? If you read Paul carefully, you will not discover a bitter, resentful, joyful, joyless, or emotionally distant man. Yes, we can certainly argue Paul had resolve and indomitable courage. We should be inspired by that example. But it is also true, for example, if you read 2 Corinthians carefully, Paul, within Paul's leadership matrix, is a man bounding with love and tears and emotion and tenderness. His communication is personal, direct, as he opens up his heart. He reflects a unique vulnerability, especially for the first century. Such transparency we may not find as shocking today, but few writers in the Roman Greek world express such love and affirmation and confidence in others. It is remarkable leadership. Here's Paul relaying his fear of unreturned affection. Here's Paul being emotionally honest at the prospect of being rejected. Where did he get power to forgive and to love like this? Paul, through the Holy Spirit, had been with Jesus. And it is clear that Paul grasped and mourned his losses. He received comfort from the Holy Spirit and from others. Paul allowed the Holy Spirit to empty the places where anger and bitterness might get stuck in his heart. His heart was full and free as he pressed on towards that high calling of Jesus. Here's what Peter against Cazero says. True spirituality frees us to live in the present. It requires, however, going back in order to go forward. This takes us to the very heart of spirituality and discipleship in the family of God, breaking free from the destructive sinful patterns of our past to live the life God intends. Here's the third obstacle, very important one. Emotions aren't that important. And emotions only show weakness. Maybe this was one of the messages in your family of origin. Now, this is connected to our point because the past often relates to dealing with painful emotions. That's why we can't go back there, why we choose not to go back there. Now, I want to say this at the outset. The Christian faith is coherent, 
It is logical. It is intellectually beautiful. It has that mental furniture. And because of that, you and me can choose to live by faith even when our feelings run counter to God's promises and word. If I know God tells me I'm His son and I'm fully loved, I need to accept that by faith even if my feelings tell me something different. Friends, that's freedom. That's freeing. My feelings are real, but I'm not enslaved to them. I fully affirm that. But it is just as, just as it is possible to over-rely on feelings, it is also possible to use the Christian faith as an excuse not to feel. Because we may be averse to being honest about pain, because we may avoid it, deny it, or rationalize it away, as Christians, we get to use half-truths to excuse us not to feel. For example, someone wounds you in a significant way. We quickly slap forgiveness on that pain. doesn't feel very good, but rather than being honest, you say to the person who hurt you, oh, it's okay. I'll be all right. It's, it's no big deal. I'm sure you had reasons for doing it. It's okay. When it's not really okay. Or maybe you've been on the other side. I've been on this side before. Where someone sins against someone egregiously, and after a little while goes by, the person who did the sinning said, why can't you just move on? You're a Pharisee. Why can't you forgive me? You see, when we exchange forgiveness cheaply like this, this is why we can't really forget. <laughs> That's why we really can't move on. <laughs> because we're dealing with it superficially. We're coping. We're not absorbing and dealing with the real issues. Other examples. We can slap Christian activity to our lives when we face loss, hiding behind service, Bible studies, conferences, so we don't have to feel. Thirdly, we can quickly slap rejoice always or be joyful always on truly sad and depressed feelings because we don't want to feel them. We don't want to feel those feelings. I rejoice always. When it may be a season where God wants you to explore why you're feeling that way. God may want to bring wholesale changes in your life and is using pain to get your attention in some cases. But we just quickly slap, rejoice always, onto it. The Christian faith, or some short-sighted version of it, can become an excuse not to feel, not to embrace loss, not to recognize the hurt in us or the hurt that we've caused others. This should not be. This should not be. Now, friends, I realize here there is a balance, and I'm emphasizing one side of the balance this morning. I recognize that. There's a balance here. I also believe that God does not want us to be superficial copers because the pain doesn't really go away if we deal with it superficially. Sometimes we can use half-truths to justify our pain avoidance or our pain denial. God has made us with emotions. It is part of who we are. 
Being emotionally healthy is a part of being human and being fully alive. Scazzaro said this really great statement. It's impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. It's impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Think of it in the physical realm. God made you to feel pain, right? So you wouldn't hurt yourself. You touch a hot stove and you don't do it again. It hurts. You might know that there's a rare disease called congenital insensitivity to pain. And I'm not quite sure how to say this, but onodrosis. It's termed simply by the word CIPA. It is a nerve disease that affects the nerves that control sensation. If a child has it, they are unable to feel pain. Their nerves just don't work. And you might think at the outset, well, what a great way to live. Man, that's a great way to live. No, it's not. Children with CIPA are constantly getting injured and bruised and in danger. This is true also in the emotional world. There is pain. Why? So we can learn and grow. In some cases, avoid bad decisions in the future. Part of the pain, part of it is, to, is God's plan to make us like Jesus, to feel compassion in His guts, in our guts like He did, to become emotionally alive and large and generous, the men and women God designed us to be. Emotions are not a sign of weakness. Emotions are important. They don't have to rule us they're a part of who we are. Objection four, I'm not ready. This can be, I know this morning this can be overwhelming. I know it can be overwhelming. I know it can be overwhelming. And maybe even as I'm speaking right now, your, bla- your brain, your brain, your brain is flooding. Your brain is rushing. I can tell you that there were parts of my own past that I did not face for a long time. And it took some exceptionally hard circumstances to force me to go back and address the pain that was affecting me in the present. I had carried, for me, I had carried with me my entire life a level of anxiety, kind of like this, a level of anxiety that I thought was normal, and I just assumed everybody had that level of anxiety. It fed in me an unhealthy ambition. It kept me focused on myself. And most importantly, it inhibited greater levels of relational connectedness and closeness. Friends, sometimes we have to keep experiencing the consequences of not addressing our pain in order to motivate us to change. Sometimes we have to keep experiencing the consequences Keep experiencing the fallout of our failed attempts to medicate our pain in order to be willing to address our past. Now, I know this has been pretty heavy this morning. Let me give here, as we move towards closing, let me give you a a funny illustration, uh, a chance to laugh at myself a little bit, lighten it up a little bit. In my college days, I tried to golf, was learning to golf, terrible golfer, but I one day was with my friend here, Jim Zuber, 
and maybe my friend Terry, many of you know, was also there. We were golfing at Raymond Memorial, I believe, over on the west side. It was a hot summer, dry day. The, you know, the turf was hard. The tees were hard. Good for, good for greater yardage if you hit it straight. If you hit it that way, it didn't help at all. But we were on a particular team. We all drove, and I got to my ball, and it was close to a sprinkler. They had the sprinkler system going because it was so dry. And so I lined up to take my shot. I got to my ball. It was close to the sprinkler, and I was trying to get ready. And all of a sudden, I get drenched. All right, so I get permission to pick up my ball, and I go to another place to hit my shot, and I'm nervous. Again, I'm young. I'm with some older guys. I feel very self-conscious. I feel very self-conscious. Um, I feel you know, embarrassed. I feel nervous. I'm not really thinking. So I go a little further, maybe 15 or 20 yards to a different direction, and I sit there, and I get my ball, and all of a sudden, and before I shoot, I'm drenched again. I'm not lying. This happened three or four times. Yeah, it's an embarrassing moment. What's going on there? Like I said, I was feeling nervous. I was feeling embarrassed who I, in front of my friends who I wanted to impress. And so what happens when you get embarrassed, nervous, and anxious? What happens to you? Your, bra your brain floods. I mean, something happens physiologically. Your brain floods. It rushes. And what happens when your brain floods to your cognitive activity? It stops. You stop thinking. You stop thinking. All cognitive activity stops. I couldn't figure it out. <laughs> Isn't this how we are a little bit with pain? We keep experiencing the consequences, but we don't know why it keeps happening to us. And so we keep choosing bad relationships. We keep going into debt. We can't figure out why I'm always disappointed with others. One of the ways that God heals us, one of the ways that God brings healing in our lives is to simply help us to slow down so we can identify the problem. You know, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God helps address that rushing. Some of you have had a level of rushing going on your whole, your whole lives. The Spirit of God brings a rest and a contentment and a serenity to stop the rushing to be quiet before him. And just like I needed to identify exactly where that was coming from, that water, and what direction it was going in, in the same way we need to stop and identify where is this coming from, and why is it happening, and why is it going on? To discern these things, we have to have a spirit-driven power to reflect, to be circumspect, to be honest, to apply biblical wisdom, to recruit others, to help us figure out what's going on in our lives. You might be saying to yourself, Chris, you don't know my situation. You don't know what I did. You don't know what someone else did to me. And I'm sure that I don't. And I'm sure I don't fully understand. But I do know that God does. And as cheesy or as super spiritual as that sounds, 
It is true. God is in the healing business. I say it because I've seen it in my life and the lives of many others. He can mend what is broken. He can restore what is lost. We spent the entire fall in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. There, Paul does a deep dive into the biblical truths of justification by faith and our adoption as sons and daughters. You see, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, through the gospel, we gain the confidence and security to face and confront, no longer deny or avoid our past in order to seek forgiveness or in order to accept forgiveness, in order to tell the truth about a loss and mourn from it, to tell the truth about the hurt caused by others in our lives, or even harder, the truth of the pain we've caused in the lives that we've caused in the lives of others. The freedom promised there empowers us not only to grow in self-knowledge and self-awareness, but the power to turn from destructive family patterns, destructive relational patterns, to life-giving patterns. Patterns that can bless the generations after you. Your past has shaped your present, but it does not need to determine your future. You just see that very good. Your past has shaped your present. It does not determine, need to determine your future. Nick and Abby, you guys can work your way up. I'm going to mention two really, really brief applications at the very end of the service, but on this note of returning to Galatians, on this note of remembering the gospel, on this note of remembering the freedom and the power we have through the Holy Spirit in Christ, on this note, I want us to come to the table and to receive the bread and receive the cup, the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Way back in Exodus, God said, I will forgive the iniquity. I will forgive the sins. And yet they lived with the attention of not knowing exactly how that would take place. Today we know. They looked forward, we looked back to the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, and the exaltation of Jesus. We take the bread and the blood and receive the new promise, the new covenant, that He will never leave us and never forsake us. You'll be released in a moment to take the bread and the cup. Again, if you're a believer in Jesus, come down. Whatever background you come from, come and take the bread and cup. Hold on to it. You can take it as we sing here uh, these last songs. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, um, we're so glad you've come today. And, and we do hope and we do pray that today you have a little bit of a better understanding of who Jesus is and what it means to be a Christian.